Section 21 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 7, Chapter 3, Part 4. The Perpetual Prison. Imprisonment for life was the penance imposed by the canons on the heretic who, under the persuasive methods of persecution, sought reconciliation to the church. It was so decreed, indeed, by pope and emperor before the Inquisition was organized, and that institution relentlessly enforced the laws. That the Spanish Holy Office should accept it was a matter of course. Its expense, however, had proved a source of tribulation in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries, and it was none the less so in Spain, for, large as were the confiscations and pecuniary penances, they were squandered as fast as they accrued. In Torquemada's Supplementary Instructions of December 1484, the receivers are ordered to provide for the maintenance of the prisons, which shows that the sovereigns admitted their responsibility, but, in the chronic financial disorder of the time, no regular provision was made, either for their establishment or support. It is true that, in 1486, at the earnest request of the inquisitors of Saragossa, Ferdinand ordered the receiver to construct a perpetual prison in accordance with their desires, but it is safe to assume that he prudently postponed replying to their inquiry as to the maintenance of the captives. In 1492, when the tribunal sentenced Brianda de Bardaxi to five years' imprisonment, it was to the Tower of Saliana, and this, in a few days, was changed to the convent of Santo Sepolero in Saragossa. In fact, for want of prisons, the custom was general of consigning reconciled penitents to strongholds, hospitals, convents, or even to their own houses the latter presumably being such shelter as friends or kindred could afford to those who had been stripped by confiscation. The instructions of 1488, indeed, authorize inquisitors, in view of the multitudes condemned to perpetual imprisonment and the lack of prisons, to designate to the penitents their houses, where they must confine themselves under the penalties provided by the laws. But this, it was added, was only meant to be temporary, and the sovereigns were supplicated to order that, at each tribunal, the receiver should provide a large enclosure with little huts and a chapel, where the prisoners could hear mass, and could each work at his trade and earn his living, and thus relieve the Inquisition from heavy burdens, due care being taken to keep the sexes apart. The only answer to this prayer seems to have been the device of relieving the prisons for the benefit of the galleys. The laxity of quartering penitents on public institutions, or in private houses, led to impracticable rules in the effort to counteract its evils. An instruction issued about this time by the Suprema orders that no one be admitted to reconciliation without condemning him to confiscation and perpetual prison, if he has been a heretic, and those thus condemned must perform their penance most rigidly, not speaking with any one except on the days when they go to Mass and hear sermons. On other days, both in going out and in eating, they must show themselves true penitents, 
holding no intercourse with wives and children. This seems to have received scant obedience, and in 1506 the Suprema ordered that San Benitos be placed on all prisoners, and that they must not leave their houses, and then in 1509 it prescribed that perpetual prisons must be provided. Apparently this was partially successful, for it was followed by instructions that all who had been or should be condemned must be placed in them, where they can ply their trades, or their kindred can supply them with food, or they may beg alms for their support. Thus, in 1510, Urena selected two pairs of houses for the purpose, which Ferdinand ordered the governor of Leon to have appraised. Cuenca also seems to have obtained a prison, but an inadequate one, for in 1511 the Suprema authorized the tribunal to permit all the sick, and all who had been confined for two years, to betake themselves to their homes. Where such prisons existed, the discipline must have been exceedingly lax, for in 1512 the Suprema issued a general provision empowering the tribunals to allow the destitute occupants of the perpetual prisons to go out by turns to beg in the cities, but they must wear their San Benitos and return by nightfall, under penalty of relapse, and this was repeated in 1513. Then the further effort to provide prisons seems to have been abandoned, for, in 1514, Jimenez issued an order permitting the reconciled to fulfill their penances in their own homes. This fluctuating policy, and the extraordinary laxity which it reveals, were not due to any humanitarian impulses. It was simply a continuous effort to shirk the responsibility of maintaining those whose property had been confiscated, and who were required by the canons to be incarcerated for life. The Inquisition obtained the plunder, it inflicted on its victims disabilities, which increased enormously the difficulty of self-support, it rendered them odious to the population by making them wear the San Benito, it was in duty bound to provide prisons where they could be immured, and prevented them from infecting the community, but it neglected this duty, and virtually told them that they might beg or starve. That death by starvation, indeed, was not uncommon, is asserted in the project of reform drawn up in 1518 by order of Charles V. Still, the tribunals seem to have made some progress in providing themselves with penitential prisons, for in 1524 the Suprema deemed it worth while to order that they should be inspected monthly, and the results be recorded in a book to be kept for that purpose. By no means all had done so, however. Barcelona, which occupied the royal palace, had found room there in 1489 for its penitents, and in 1544 we hear of Jerónimo de Cuadras as alcaide on a salary of fifty ducats, out of which he was to pay for a person to conduct the prisoners to mass and to bring them back. Valencia was less advanced, for it could have had no prison in 1540, when it sentenced three women to keep as a prison such place as should be designated to them, but in 1546 it secured the services of Jerónimo de Cuadras as alcaide at a salary of thirty ducats. In 1550, however, he complained that he had never received his pay, and in 1554 we find the perpetual prison of Brianda de Garcete commuted to confinement in her own house, 
or other designated place, which would indicate that the attempt to establish a prison had been abandoned. In 1553, Legroño apparently had none, for it assigned, to Juan Prebost, Bilbao and two leagues around as a prison, with the San Benito. This need not surprise us, for, if in some tribunals there was an attempt to provide a perpetual prison, it was exceptional. In 1537 the Suprema had formally declared that it would be a novelty to support the penitents at the cost of the fisc. This could not and ought not to be done. There was no objection to their performing their penance in their own homes, and the tribunals could arrange it accordingly. A few months later this was repeated. The reconciled could be sent to their houses to perform their penance, if they had no other means of support. At length, the instructions of 1561 endeavored to introduce some system in the scandalous state of things. The sentence of reconciliation condemned the penitent to prison and San Benito for a specified term, during which he was to wear the abito publicly over his other garments. He was to be confined in the perpetual prison, going to mass and sermon on Sundays and feast days, and on Saturdays performing certain devotions at a designated shrine. To enforce this discipline, the instructions stated that, as many tribunals had no perpetual prison, houses should be bought for the purpose, as without them there were no means of knowing whether the reconciled performed their penance. The alcaide should help them in their necessity by giving them materials to work at their trades and help to support themselves, and the inquisitors should visit the prisons several times a year. This seems to have been followed by an effort to induce the tribunals to provide prisons, for, in 1562, Toledo was taken to task for having none. It not only did not supply the deficiency, but demurred to the suggestion that it should at least furnish a person to see that the penitents performed their penance, and it was told that for three or four thousand maravedis of extra pay, the portero could attend to this. In 1570, the Suprema resumed the attempt to bring about this much-needed reform. It told the tribunals that they could rent houses until they should be able to purchase, and they must appoint proper persons as alcaides to watch over the penitents. The result of this pressure was gradual. In 1577, the Cistercian convent of Santa Fe in Saragossa made formal complaint to the Pope of the number of penitents quartered upon it, and Cardinal Savelli, the head of the Roman Inquisition, interposed with the Suprema to relieve it of this oppression. It was not until 1598 that the Mexican tribunal, nearly thirty years after its foundation, built a capacious prison adjoining its own structure. In 1600, for the first time, there is an allusion in the Toledo record to a Carcel de la Penitencia, and in 1609, Valencia was busy in erecting one at a cost of 5,110 libras. It had been planned to have three floors, but was economically reduced to two. Whether all the tribunals yielded to the pressure and established penitential prisons, it would be impossible to say, but they probably did so, if only in some perfunctory fashion that justified the appointment of an alcaide. Simultaneously with this there came a change in the name, and the carcel perpetua was known as the Casa de la Penitencia, 
or de la misericordia. It does not follow that the establishment of prisons was attended with any increased strictness of discipline. The Inquisition persistently refused to accept the burden of supporting its prisoners, and left them to shift for themselves. Where prisons existed, there were few penitents in them, although condemnations to imprisonment were frequent, and in 1641 Philip IV conceived the idea of liberating them all. The Suprema sent his decree to the tribunals with orders to report whether they had any prisoners and what were their cases, to which Valencia replied that it had one, imprisoned for persistent sorcery, whereupon the Suprema ordered the sentence to be commuted and the prisoner to be discharged. The royal project fell through. All prisons were not as empty as that of Valencia, and a discussion occurring in 1654 at Granada, to which allusion has already been made, illustrates the character of the imprisonment rendered necessary by the refusal to support the prisoners. They gained their living chiefly by hawking goods around the city. This at length aroused the shopkeepers, and the corregidor represented to the tribunal that scandals were occasioned by their entering houses and committing indecencies. There was loss to the king, for, as penitents, they were not subject to the alcavala and other imposts. Thus favored, they undersold the shopkeepers, who had lost half their trade, while the penitents grew rich, for they came almost naked from the secret prison, and, in a short time, they were well clothed and enriched. The tribunal admitted the force of this, and, on December 24, 1654, issued an order that, for two weeks, they might cry their wares through the streets, but not enter houses, and subsequently be restricted to selling in shops. At this the prisoners complained bitterly of the deprivation of a privilege of long-standing in all places where there was a tribunal, for without it they could not earn a living or support their wives and families. Thereupon the fiscal, Dr. Joseph Francisco Cresco de Escobar, seeing that both sides would appeal to the Suprema, printed for its enlightenment a memorial which reveals to us the character of penitential imprisonment. He states that, in accordance with the instructions of 1488, the tribunals had provided penitential prisons, the one at Granada being of ample capacity for the observance of the instructions of 1561. He quotes the canons and conciliar decrees to show that recanting heretics are to be immured for life, whence he argues that the prison should be afflictive and penal. Now, however, it is only nominal. The so-called prisoners go out at all hours of the day, without restriction, without a companion, without labor save what they voluntarily undertake, all of which is liberty and not captivity. They wander at will through the city and suburbs, they amuse themselves at the houses of their friends, they spend, if they choose, only part of the night in the prison, which serves them as a comfortable lodging-house free of rent. The instructions require that the alcaide shall see that they perform their penance, but this has become impossible, and there are no means of restricting their intercourse with the faithful. As for their plea that they leave the secret prison broken in health and stripped of their property, that they have no chance to learn trades, and must support their families by trading, the answer is that only through the mercy of the holy office do they escape burning, 
and they should be thankful that their lives are spared. Their poverty is a trifling penalty for their crimes, and their children only share the punishment of paternal heresy. With all this laxity, there was a pretense of maintaining the old rigor, which regarded prison-breaking as relapse, but the real offense lay in the fugitive throwing off the San Benito. There seems to have been little desire to recapture those who absented themselves, for the formula of the mandate to search for and arrest fugitives only concerns itself with those who escape from the secret prison and who thus are still on trial. But when, from any cause, penitents were returned to the tribunal, their treatment is exemplified in the case of Juan González, who escaped from the Casa de la Penitencia of Valladolid, July 3, 1645. His story was that, having gone out to collect some money due to him, he gambled it away, got drunk, went to sleep under the walls of the Carmelite convent in the suburbs, and, on awaking next morning, and fearing punishment, he wandered away, throwing off the San Benito and seeking work. Thus he reached Irun, and designed passing into France, but was recognized by a priest who had seen him in Valladolid. He was handed over to the commissioner, and was passed from familiar to familiar, till he was lodged in the secret prison of Valladolid. The fiscal claimed that his flight and throwing off the San Benito proved him to be an impenitent and pertinacious relapsed into Judaism, who must be relaxed, but his sentence was only two hundred lashes and irremissible prison. Sentences to imprisonment continued as usual, but growing indifference as to providing for their execution is indicated by a correspondence between Barcelona and the Suprema in 1718. At that time, the tribunal had but four cases under trial. It still occupied the ancient royal palace, but, after it had condemned for Judaism Maria Menses to irremissible, and her daughter Catalina de Solis to perpetual prison, it did not know what to do with them, and applied for instructions. There was, it said, no penitential prison, nor could it find that there ever had been one, neither was there an alcaide. It possessed no house that could be used for the purpose, and no official could be spared from his other duties. The Suprema replied by inquiring whether there was a prison for familiars in which a room could be used for the women, or whether some little house near the palace could be had, and some official or familiar could serve as alcaide. The tribunal rejoined, negativing the proposed use of the prison for familiars. It would see whether a house could be had, but there was no money for the purpose. As for the officials, they were all fully occupied, and no one would take the position without salary. This the Suprema met with a peremptory order to rent a little house and appoint an alcaide at the ordinary wages. Under this pressure some kind of provision must have been made, for, in an auto of January 31, 1723, the tribunal condemned four Judaizers to irremissible prison. During the recrudescence of persecution at this period, the number of condemnations to imprisonment was large. In the Granada Auto of December 21, 1720, there were twenty-seven, and in sixty-four autos between 1721 and 1727, there were seven hundred and forty. How these numerous prisoners were accommodated, it would be difficult to guess, 
for the neglect of the penitential prisons was progressive, and, in the census of all the tribunals, about 1750, but three reported to have alcaides, Cordova, Granada, and Murcia. It does not follow that others had not prisons, but only that they had no prisoners and cared to have none. For instance, in 1794, when the Suprema inquired of Valencia whether its prison would suit for the priest Juan Fernandez Sotelo, whose health required a change from the convent where he was recluded, the tribunal craftily replied that its prison was constructed with cells and dungeons, and that, in the eyes of the people, confinement in it produced infamy, so that quarters for Sotelo had better be found in some convent in the suburbs. Apparently it forgot all this when, in 1802, it complained that the salaries of its secretaries had not been raised in 1795, while that of the alcaide of the penitential prison had been increased from a hundred and twenty to twenty-two hundred reales, although he had nothing to do and enjoyed the use of a house in the prison as good as those of the inquisitors. In fact, by this time penitential imprisonment was virtually obsolete. After the subsidence of the active persecution of Judaism, the Toledo Tribunal, which in 1738 pronounced twelve sentences of prison, did not utter another until 1756. Then a long interval occurs of thirty-eight years before the next one, which was for heretical propositions. It would not, perhaps, be safe to say that, in the concluding years of the Inquisition, this form of punishment was wholly unknown, but no cases of it have come under my observation. There was the same reduction in the duration of imprisonment as in its severity, owing presumably to the same economical motive. As we have seen, the medieval church recognized only lifelong imprisonment as the fitting penalty for the heretic who saved his forfeited life by recantation, and, in recognition of this, the penitential prison in Spain was officially known as the perpetual prison, the sentences being always for perpetual imprisonment. At a very early period, however, it was clearly recognized that the literal enforcement of this was a physical impossibility. Bernaldes tells us that in Seville, up to 1488, there had been five thousand reconciled and condemned to perpetual imprisonment but they were released after four or five years with San Benitos, and these were subsequently removed to prevent the spread of infamy throughout the land. At Barcelona, the tribunal had scarce been established when we find it drawing a distinction in its sentences to perpetual imprisonment, some being cum misericordia, and others absque misericordia, thus anticipating the so-called irremissible perpetual prison, and from the sentences it would appear that, without mercy, was exceptional. This inevitable laxity provoked opposition on the part of the more rigid authorities, and in 1509, while Jimenez was in Oran, there was a discussion on the subject in the Suprema, when we are told that his temporary representative, Rojas Archbishop of Granada, stood alone against the other members. What was the nature of the decision is not recorded, but it probably favored the laxer view, for Jimenez and the Suprema in 1516 deemed it necessary to order that all sentences to prison and San Benito must be perpetual, 
in accordance with the canon law. If, in any case, the inquisitors thought that there should be a remission, it must be left to the discretion of the inquisitor-general. The tendency to shorten the term was irresistible. The conservatives had to yield, and, by the middle of the sixteenth century, Simancas tells us that perpetual prison was customarily defined to be three years, if the penitent was repentant, while those condemned to irremissible prison were usually released after eight years. So purely technical did the term perpetual prison become, that inquisitors saw nothing incongruous in such sentences as perpetual prison for one year, or for six months, which are constantly met with, as well as perpetual prison followed by terms of exile. The real infliction was therefore much less severe than it appears in the records, and, when periods longer than eight years were intended, they were specified, as when Salvador Rasso, for Molinism, was sentenced in the Granada Auto of July 4, 1745, to ten years, of which the first five were to be spent in the galleys, a hardship remitted on account of his infirmities. The terms of imprisonment were frequently shortened, moreover, sometimes from humane motives, but more often from financial considerations, for the dispensing power in this, as in the other penalties, was a source of profit. Thus Mayor Garcia, a Morisca of Daimiel, condemned in the Toledo Auto of September 21, 1550, to perpetual prison for six months, on January 13, 1551, petitioned the tribunal for release, as was customary with others, saying that her husband would pay what the inquisitors should demand. The matter was promptly arranged with Inquisitor Alonso Perez for four ducats, to help to build the staging for an auto de fe, a somewhat heavy payment for two months' relief. This dispensing power was the subject of a prolonged struggle between the tribunals and the Suprema. In the early period, at Barcelona, the former endeavored to secure it by the device of discretional sentences, which inquisitors could curtail or extend at will, and this was recognized in a letter of the Suprema, October 4, 1499, authorizing them, under such sentences, to dispense with the imprisonment, but not with the San Benito. In 1513, however, Jimenez forbade this without his consent, and the repetition of the order in 1514 and 1516 shows that it was difficult of enforcement. In spite of this, when the Valencia Tribunal, February 25, 1540, condemned five moriscos to habit and prison for as long a time as we shall determine, the Suprema insisted that, when discretion was specified, it must alone be that of the Inquisitor-General, a mandate that had to be repeated more than once, even as late as 1592. The question of this, as of all other commutations, was inevitably settled, as we have seen, in favor of the Inquisitor-General. In many cases there was no concealment that it was purely an affair of bargain and sale, but it is pleasant to record that often it was prompted by humanity. Petitions for abridgment of the penance were numerous, and were usually sent in at the time of the greater feasts, which are alleged as a reason for mercy in addition to the misery of the penitent. As an example of these petitions may be mentioned the case of Violante Rodriguez, 
who, with her husband Duarte Valentin, was arrested for Judaism March 15, 1664. After three years' trial, she was sentenced at Granada, February 24, 1667, to two years' imprisonment, while her husband was similarly sentenced at Cuenca. About August 10th, she petitioned for commutation, alleging that she had eight little children deprived of both parents. The Suprema promptly sent to Granada for the details of the case, but the tribunal delayed until October 8th, when it accompanied its report with the suggestion that she should be released with spiritual penances after the expiration of the first year, as she had manifested true repentance. Growing impatient, on December 24th she again petitioned the Suprema, alluding to her seven children, thus showing that one had meanwhile died. That she was duly discharged in February there can be no doubt, and there is no trace in the correspondence of any pecuniary consideration. Some of the petitions for release, in truth, were well calculated to inspire compassion, such as that of Simon Mendes Soto in 1666, wherein he describes himself as eighty-four years old, blind, deaf, crippled on both sides, with many infirmities, and penniless, and he supplicates release that he may seek for cure. There would appear to have been no minimum age for imprisonment, short of irresponsibility. The Toledo Tribunal condemned for Judaism Garcia, son of Pedro the Potter of Aguda, a boy eleven years of age, to perpetual prison. In the Cuenca Auto of June 29, 1654, for the same offense, Escolastica Gomez, aged twelve, and Isabel Diaz Jorge, aged fourteen, had the same penalty, and in the Toledo Auto of October 30, 1701, José de León, a boy of sixteen, was sentenced to irremissible prison. End of section 21